It's the Adam Ritz Show, a social awareness talk show touching on fellowship, leadership, philanthropy, and more. Adam hosts the show on location from coast to coast, interviewing college students, student athletes, campus administrators, professional athletes, and social experts about social issues ranging from bullying to Twitter and everything in between. And now, it's your social awareness radio host, Adam Ritz. I'm Adam Ritz, and we are broadcasting live at Lehigh University in front of a live studio audience. Wow. Woo! Yes. All right. And we have our first guest with us. What is your name? Sonia. Sonia, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I, I'm doing great. And what is your major here? I don't have one yet. I'm a freshman. <laughs> what, are you, uh, leaning, what are your talents? What are, you leaning, are you good at math? No. You're not good at math? No. Now, Lehigh is mainly an engineering school, right? I'm the dumbest girl here, too. <laughs> okay, so now you shouldn't have said that because now the fraternity guys on this side of the room are making notes. Okay, make sure we get to know Sonia. She's just admitted she's the dumbest girl here. Okay, well, what do you, what do you think your major might be? I might do, like, political science, international relations, journalism. It's always, the, it's always the person that has no idea what they're going to do that ends up being the most successful one in the room. I like this. You like that? Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, for now, you're going to be the news director on my radio show. Is that okay with you? That's awesome. Here is your story, and this just happened uh, last week. And uh, we go now live to the news desk with Sonia. I don't just read this. Do I tell the story? You just read that. <laughs> okay. Time Magazine reports that shoulder surfing is a popular and legal practice by job interviewers. That's very good. How about that, huh? Round of applause for Sonia. <laughs> Stay with me. Shoulder surfing. Do you know what that is? I'm guessing when you, like, ride on people's shoulders. <laughs> That's correct. Uh, but <laughs> it's not, what, not the answer we're looking for. Uh, could you guess what shoulder surfing is? Anybody? In a job interview? It sucks is what it does. This is awful. I, it's hard to believe this is legal, but it is legal. And again, I want to thank Sonia for being on the show. Uh, before we get into shoulder surfing and the definition of it, let's give her one more round of applause. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Shoulder surfing, it's the practice of your, of your job interviewer making you log into your Facebook and go through your private posts with your friends, all your pictures and posts with your friends while they're over your shoulder watching. They're shoulder surfing as you go through your Facebook. Does that sound like anything you'd want to do? Now, it used to be legal to uh, actually ask your job applicant for their Facebook login. So before you even come into the office for the interview, they could ask for your login and go through everything. That's illegal now. You can't do that. But they're allowed to ask you to log into your Facebook page right there in their office and look at your, everything while you surf it. Uh, you can obviously turn it down, and then guess what? You don't get the job. Could this happen to you? Yes. Now, when you say yes, do you mean, <laughs> do you mean like that it could happen in a job interview to you? Or do you mean that they would surf and see some really bad stuff on your Facebook page? No, they could sh surf over my shoulder. And they, and they wouldn't find anything 
disparaging at all. No, sir. Because you are the least interesting person in the room. <laughs> the most interesting man in the world. Okay. How many, just show, of hand, show of, a round of applause, and this is not going to get you in trouble. Round of applause, how many people right now, if you were in a job interview, would, be, would turn bright red if the job interviewer said, hey, let's log into your Facebook and take a look? Get socially technical with The Adam Ritz Show. Facebook, Adam Ritz Show. Twitter, at Adam Ritz. It's social, but technical. Absolute honor and privilege to be joined now by Rudy Sarzo, one of the most prolific rock bassists in history. He's played with Ozzy, uh, Quiet Riot, and White Snake. Hi, Rudy. Hi, Adam. How are you doing? I'm so proud to be sitting here next to you talking with you. It's an honor. It's great to be here. I have to ask you first about Ozzy. You've got a book out um, going off the rails. Yeah, it's off the rails. Yeah. I'm sorry, off the rails. And first, tell us about the, the idea to get the book going. Well, the idea was basically to tell the story of Randy Rhodes. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the cast of characters, of course, that had to be there. You know, Ozzy and Sharon and Tommy Aldridge, you know, the guys in the band and stuff like that. And also the, uh, the guys in, in, the, in the Quiet Riot band when Randy was in the band, you know, such as Kevin DeBrow and uh, Drew Forsythe and stuff like that. Now, but it's basically to answer the number one question I get asked whenever I travel around the world, which is what, what was it like to play with, with Randy Rhodes, you know? Mm -hmm. So I had to put it down in a book. There was so much to tell. And what's been your uh, response coast to coast with the book? It's been, uh, yeah, extremely positive. You know, I mean, if you look at uh, Amazon.com, you know, they post reviews and we have about 110 reviews and, you know, a four and a half star, you know, leaning towards five, you know. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's been very, very positive. You know, you look, e e even if one person gets it, if they understand what the book is about, it's, it's, it's worth writing. Now, I want to ask about Ozzy. Uh, we as parents have at least once said to our children, don't do drugs, look at Ozzy. Now I want to ask you from your firsthand experience of, of knowing Ozzy for decades, was Ozzy like he is today, 30 years ago? Well, well let me jump in on that. I mean, if, uh, if, uh, I, I watched just about every episode of his, uh, the Osbournes, mm -hmm. and there was one in them that he was actually telling the kids, don't do drugs, don't turn into what, you know, into like what I am today, you know. Uh, Yes, he was affected by drugs uh, um, and alcohol, mostly alcohol, I will have to say that. Uh, Sharon did a really good job of trying to keep him away from, from drugs as much as possible. But in the old days, um, by that I mean the early 80s, um, uh, drug use was very common. Not only in rock bands, but, you know, I mean, we were based out of California and, you know, cities like that. I lived in Miami, you know. <laughs> Back in, I mean, if you ever saw watch Scarface, mm -hmm. it was pretty much like that. <laughs> I mean, I when I watched the movie, I thought I was watching a home movie. I was like, wait a minute, I know those guys. <laughs> you know, it it, it it was that bad back in those days. But then it was, it was pretty pretty common. It was like a lifestyle. This this is what people did. You know, and uh, it was not it wasn't even a surprise if if you find out that somebody was doing blow. Drinking, you know, that's that's a whole different story. But drugs, you know, uh, cocaine. Uh, if you were a young band on the bill, you were on tour, uh, and you wanted to talk somebody in, in the road crew into getting you more sound on stage, so it's just monitors or PA system or lights or anything like that, um, a gram of blow was like the currency of uh, of choice, you know. But then that was that. I haven't seen any of that since uh, 90s on, all of a sudden, people stopped, quit doing drugs. Uh, 
you can't really function while you're doing it. You know, and and as people mature, you know, the uh, the crews and the musicians, they have to make a make a decision. You know, you you come to a point that you say, hey, you know, you're either going to quit doing this, or if you keep doing it, you know, you're going to either lose your job or or die. You know, whichever comes first. And um, so I haven't really seen drug use on the road since the early 90s, you know, almost, you know, 15, 20 years, you know. Most of us that have um, partaken in in drugs and alcohol at some point say, I can't believe we made it through that and lived. Mm -hmm. Can you think of an example, especially with the Aussie days where... There was a night where it maybe got a little worse than you had intended when you th- when things just get, maybe got out of control. Did you wake up in a city you didn't know where you were and there was a, a, a moose in the room and you were half naked and you were like, what am I doing? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> maybe no moose? No moose. No, no, <laughs> no, no animals were, were, were hurt or involved in this thing. Uh, no, it, just, it wasn't just was the, uh, the cocaine. It was, uh, I mean, if... if because Sharon always was keeping an eye on Ozzy. So if you party with Ozzy, you were going to drink. You were going to have a there, you know, have a whatever, you know, in the bus drinking, you know. And when I, and when I first joined the band, uh, they, they, you know, I guess they were hoping that I would be like Ozzy's drinking buddy. Because Tommy Aldrich, the drummer, had already been with other bands. You know, he'd been through it with... Black Oak and Pat Travers, so he wasn't really much interested in that. And Randy Rose had already spent like uh, just about two years working with Ozzy, so he was kind of like a, he, he he went through that period. So me being the new guy on the road in the band, they hoped that I would be like one of the guys hanging out with Ozzy, you know, having a drink. And I figured, yeah, you know, it's Ozzy Osbourne. Why not? You know, let's go hang out with him. You know, he's a cool guy and you know, rock star and all the above. You know. But I just I just couldn't keep up, and I had to make a decision that day. I was either going to throw away everything I've ever worked for all my life, and here I have a break, and I'm finally doing finally doing what I, you know, pray to God that I was, would be able to do someday, or just either kill myself or get fired. You know, so that day my decision was like, that's it, no more. No more trying to keep up with Ozzy. <laughs> That'd be hard to do for sure. Uh, Rudy, <laughs> maybe impossible. I don't know if anybody who ever has been able to. I don't. I think I don't advise anyone to get in a drinking contest with Ozzy Osbourne. No, you can't. No. Uh, Rudy was part of uh, Quiet Riot. Uh, the uh, the claim to fame being the num- the first heavy metal band to ever have a number one album in America. Well, correct. The first heavy metal band de- with a debut album. That reached number one okay. in the United States. Congratulations on that too. Billboard magazine. Yeah, thank you. It's yeah. <laughs> Every you know when when I go to a restaurant and I order dinner, when it comes to pay the check, I tell people that and I get a free meal. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, drugs and alcohol have uh, negatively affected your relationships uh, with Kevin Dubrow, the lead singer of Quiet Right, who has passed away um, with a cocaine-related accidental overdose. Can you talk about? How you found out about that? How you felt? What this means to you? Yeah, you know what we we were our, our relationship was pretty much strained because uh, the last time we played was two thousand and three. That was that's when that original configuration of the band broke up, which is the Frankie and Carlos and Kevin and myself, the Metal Health uh, edition of the band. And uh, he passed away in two thousand and seven. So it had been like four years since I spoke with him. So 
I didn't know what his lifestyle was like. But, uh, you know, any anytime you hear about somebody who you've had so many great experiences with, you know, when they when they die so unnecessarily, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it hit me like a sledgehammer, you know, because you just don't, don't expect anything like that to happen, you know. Uh, there's a lot of things that were unresolved, you know, between him and me that um that I wish they would have not you know gone that way, but you just never know when when somebody you know is not gonna be there anymore to you know to solve things but uh yeah, so you know from this point on, I just think of all the good things that we experience together and just carry on like that, you know so now you're out still playing with Blue Easter cult, and uh, if you could compare you know you've mentioned cleaning up your life or die or get fired so i imagine life on the road now with rock and roll is a lot different than when you were 20 years old yeah uh, actually i was 30 when i was 20 years old i couldn't afford any <laughs> alcohol or drugs it's like all of a sudden you you make it you know you get a gig in a, in a uh, touring band and not only do you get the alcohol and the and, and the drugs but also musical equipment that you couldn't afford back then, you know, it was like, wait a minute, I can buy my own stuff now. No, 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 come on. We'll give it to you for free. Okay, well, thanks. As long as I as long as it is what I want to play, you know, that's that's always good. But uh uh the difference now is that in those days, to be honest with you, it was pretty boring going on the road. Uh we didn't have any laptops. It was very non productive. So a lot of people just trying to find creative ways to just kill time until the next gig. And some of us, uh, you know, was a little bit self-destructive. Whereas now we have the opportunity to actually be very creative on the road, productive, and always be in communication with the ones you love and and even reach out to your fans on on Facebook and stuff like that. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, what would you say, uh, now that you're wiser and, um, and more productive and more creative, if you could go back in time and talk to that 30-year-old version of yourself that right when you hit it big and you had that money and maybe we're making some a little less wise decisions, what, what would you say to yourself if you could go back in time? Well, I did. I did. I did. I went back. Uh, I didn't have to go back in time. That, that day that I make my decision, like, like about three or four weeks until my first tour with Ozzy Osbourne. I knew exactly, you know, that I had to stop trying to keep up with him. And if I was going to drink, just have a drink on the days off and and uh, never never get a hangover the day of the show. And, so, you know, I have to be clear. I have to be spot on. Yeah. That's fantastic. I, I'm, I'm proud of you. This is, a, this is impressive to me um, because a lot of us music fans – Half of the allure of, of your industry is just the parties. Oh, no, listen, if I want to party, I would just stay. I, look, you have to remember, I come from Miami. That was like party town. I could have stayed playing in a disco band. Mm-hmm. I mean, why? That was it. You know, you know. I, I know guys that stay behind. And, you know, all they did was uh, play in disco bands, make a lot of money, and 
and do a lot of drugs and drink and buy, you know, fancy cars and then knock up a girl and get into trouble financially and then start selling drugs in order to survive and get busted, go to jail. And it was a disaster. Whereas I just took a couple of suitcases and my guitar and just left town trying to really make it. I wasn't really interested in and being just a disco bar band musician, that, was, that, that wasn't what, I mean, I was going to make it or die trying. If I was going to die trying, it was not going to be because of drugs or alcohol. That's great. Yeah. That's great. If you could uh, sum up what you've learned in the past few decades and uh, pass on that advice to uh, a 20, 22-year-old person, what, what would you say to that person? The most important thing to me that really prepared me to keep my head level was find your spiritual center. Whatever it is, mine happens to be Christianity. I'm a Christian. And I made my peace with God before I got that call from Ozzy and Sharon. She actually called me first to audition for the band. And I got the gig thanks to Randy Rhodes. By then, I, I was prepared spiritually. I was centered. I knew that the most important thing for me was my relationship with God. And if I was going to Make it as a musician, that was fine. If I didn't, that was fine too. That's right. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to ask you beyond uh, responsibility and social awareness now, let's have some fun. Um, have you had a spinal tap moment? All the funny things that happened to that uh, band in the movie, so many things that a real band can identify with. Have you had a spinal tap moment? Yeah. Of course, I think every band has had a spinal tap moment. That's, that's what makes the movie so, so special. Because it's so spot on, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, yeah, I've had stuff like uh, trying to enter the stage with elevators and and breaking down and having to climb out of an elevator shaft on stage and you know stuff like that. Or or the the actual stage just falling out. I actually fell through the stage one time. Uh, yeah, and your wireless system doesn't work, and you start picking up cab drivers, you know. Around the arena and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, sure. Just about everything on Spinal Tap is is happened to somebody. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Rudy Sarzo. Thank you, Adam. The Adam Ritz Show is recorded live, both in studio and across the country. For information on this broadcast, including how to hear this show on a station in your city, visit adamritzshow.com. I'm in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, at the University of Alabama with Jeff Purinton. Hi, Jeff. How we doing? We're doing fantastic. You're the, uh, what are you, some sort of athletic director here? <laughs> some sort of. we got quite a few here, but I work with communications and uh, more so with football than anything else. So I'm just one of the, one of the guys here uh, working hard at the University of Alabama and enjoying what we do. As uh, associate athletic director at the University of Alabama, uh, I'm certain your role was... Uh, very in-depth with the um, tornado that hit Tuscaloosa over a year ago. I think it was just a couple of Aprils ago, Aprils ago, and uh, boy, it really touched the whole nation. Everybody remembers where they were when they heard about that devastating tornado through Tuscaloosa. Um, And really, there was some campus damage as well, wasn't there? It just missed campus, and you can see, uh, actually step out of this building, I mean, literally not even a half mile from the athletic center, the basketball facility, the stadium, everything. It literally just missed. But some of the off-campus housing and apartments, all of those houses were uh, completely devastated and knocked to the ground. And then your student-athletes, the Crimson Tide, 
uh, really pulled together. I remember seeing stories, uh, national media news outlets covering stories of student athletes and really everybody in the entire state of Alabama coming together to pitch in to help the families, the victims of that tornado. Maybe talk about uh, your student athletes. What was their role in the community during that tragedy? Well, I think the first thing obviously everybody did was make sure everybody was accounted for. And we were fortunate that uh, we didn't lose any of our student-athletes. There were some students that passed away. And then the next thing was, what what can we do to help? And Coach Saban's message to the football team was, these these fans and the people of this community and this state have been there for you during the worst of times. Now it's time for us to be there for them. And I think the next day after the tornado, once we found out all the players were, were okay, he gave that message to them and kind of challenged our team to go out and, and make a difference. So I know every Saturday our strength coach would take 40 or 50 guys out and they'd clean up, build houses, whatever the case may be. Coach Saban did a 14 for 14 for each national championship, uh, rebuilding houses in the community. So rebuild 14 houses. They're almost finished with that. Our players went and worked on that along with the other sports. We even had players from Kent State uh, who we played in the first game last year came down and worked with our players, people from Auburn, you know, student athletes and students at Auburn came here along with other schools who we played in other sports. So it was really neat to see everybody, not only in the community, but the state, the southeast, college athletics just kind of unite uh, for one common goal. It was, it was really neat to see and take something that was such a negative and so devastating mm-hmm. and turn it into a positive. And then I heard recently that there were some, uh, I guess, accolades or awards. Not that you do that for awards, but there was some sort of, what was it, the Disney Award that was given to the University of Alabama, the student-athletes for this? Right. Every year in December, ESPN gives the Disney Spirit Award at their college football award show where they give the Doak Walker Award and all those different uh, individual awards. But we submitted our football team uh, as a possible uh, winner of the award, and they were selected, and Carson Tinker um, who actually lost his girlfriend in the tornado, and he had done a lot in terms of speaking in the community and trying to be a positive influence on people. He went and accepted the award along with some of our players and Coach Saban. So that was a great honor, and, and Coach even talks about, you know, the national championship and all those things are, are awesome, and, and that's why you play. But he's most proud probably of the Disney Spirit Award and receiving that in December. I was going to say, you know, that almost sounds better. That's more impressive than the national right. championship. That is a great award. That is fantastic for your guys. No question. And I think you, everybody who saw that video and watched the award show, I mean, if you watched that, you had a lump in your throat. There's not, no matter where you are, who you rooted for. And around here, you know, with the, all the national championships and success, there's 14 national championships. There's only one Disney Spirit Award. So yeah. it is very significant and people are, are proud of it. Jeff Purinton is our guest, Associate Athletic Director with the University of Alabama uh, Athletics. And uh, let's have some fun now on this campus. I have to assume football Saturdays are probably uh, the best part of working here. Besides the obvious stuff like football and national championships, what are some of your favorite things about this campus? You know, to me, Tuscaloosa, and I actually had never been here. I I went to school at Florida State. I'd never been to Tuscaloosa or the University of Alabama before I came here in 2007 to work. But it's kind of, if you kind of drew up a campus and and the whole atmosphere and and all the buildings kind of match, it's a little bit of the southern look, um, but all the buildings are new as well. I mean, it's kind of how it's supposed to look. You can walk everywhere. We have a little over 30,000 students, have the quad where everybody goes and 
you know, plays, throws the football or plays Frisbee, hangs out before the games and, you know, has the tents and the tailgates. So you, if you hadn't been to an Alabama football game and kind of had a chance to see the campus, you probably need to do that. That needs to be on your bucket list if you have one. All right. Well, then I guess I should end this interview by saying two words. Roll Tide. <laughs> Roll Tide. Appreciate it. Adam Ritz is a media personality and keynote speaker interviewing amazing people from coast to coast. Follow him on Twitter at Adam Ritz or listen to him now on The Adam Ritz Show. Welcome to the broadcast. We have our guests Tyler and Lorenzo. They are students at Penn State University. Hi, Tyler. Hi. And Lorenzo. How you guys doing? And uh, we're glad to have you on from Penn State. We're talking about your dance marathon. I just learned about this, and I have to admit I'm blown away at the scale of this, I guess, campus-wide initiative, campus-wide philanthropy. Tyler, tell us about Dance Marathon at Penn State University. Well, it's a 46-hour dance marathon that starts, we start fundraising it um, in October, the very first of October, and it goes all the way to the third weekend in February. And it's a campus-wide initiative, and you help raise money for kids with pediatric cancer. It's the largest run student philanthropy in the entire world. And since 1973, which it started, there's never not been a year which we have raised um, less money than the previous year. And this past year, we raised $10.6 million for kids with cancer. What? $10.6 million. Let me, okay, let me, let's get these numbers straight. <laughs> I thought I heard you say $10.6 million. How much money was raised? $10.6 million. From the students at Penn State University for, for kids with cancer. That is correct. I, what? It's a lot of money. A lot of money in a short amount of time. Now, yeah, and so, okay, how's it work? You go get money, and then you well, dance all night? Is, well, the Penn State students do is that they go around the East Coast, like certain weekends, designated weekends, can't call Canny weekends. They go the entire East Coast, and they sit in a door-to-door yeah, -door or street in the middle of the street, and they help kids. They do something called canning. What they do is they just, like, have a sign that says, help kids with cancer. Pretty much cars come up to you and offer money. And things we do is store in rain, rain, whatever, shine, no matter what, we always do every single weekend. And uh, 10.6 million, I mean, that's amazing. I, I, there's a lot of campuses that do dance marathons. I'm sure you're aware of, of uh, you would call them, what, posers or people trying to be like you or what? <laughs> no, it's no, not a bad no. thing. It's a good thing. As long as you're helping out. But, uh, yes, no one does like Penn State does. And, you know, what? that's a good question. Uh, with other dance marathons at other campuses, is this, a, I guess, a nationwide initiative? Is it, are dance marathons done on the same weekend nationwide? Or no, is this really just the special way Penn State does it and you do it all by yourself? Well, it's starting to catch on now. Like Penn State was like, we set the tone for it, then other campuses started to catch on. Like, Rutgers is getting big, University of Illinois is getting big, but all major colleges start really do dance marathons. Usually, they all help kids with cancer. But we have the biggest, we have a, it's a 46 hour, no sleeping, no sitting dance marathon, and that's like the culmination of all your fundraising, and that uh, takes place in the third weekend of February. So it starts at, on Friday at 6 o'clock and ends on Sunday at 4 o'clock. So, uh, Lorenzo, you actually dance during the marathon. Yes. What do you do? Macarena, hokey pokey. I mean, you do, you do a good amount of dancing. Yes, you do, because like, there's a big stage that helps to entertain you guys during the whole show. But the big thing is just no sit down. Things. Each dancer actually has a morale that keeps you going. Because at certain times, everyone has their low points. But then you have the person who's attached to you to make sure you keep going the entire time. And is there uh, like a like a mobile DJ playing uh, oh, they play contemporary music. hits and dance songs? And they stuff? play music nonstop. The big song actually is Whitney Houston. Your love, love is my love. That's the biggest song of the year all the time. So yeah. it, it, it entertains us a lot. Do they do maybe some ACDC and do some air guitar dancing? I mean, it's 46 hours nonstop. <laughs> non they, they, play, they play everything. They play everything. Okay, and then uh, I guess if we look at this from within your own organization, you guys are in a fraternity. 
Yes, we're members of Alpha Tau Omega fraternity. And uh, individually, I guess, not individually, but as, a, as an organization, your fraternity chapter uh, raised what? I mean, out of the 10.6 million total, how's it break down per group or organization? What did you guys do? Uh, we raised uh, $330,000 this year. Also yeah. paired with our sisters at Alpha. Paired, paired with our sister. We're also paired, every or, Greek organization is paired with a sorority. So with um, Zeta Alpha sorority, we combined raised $330,000. Do you realize how insane that is? Yes, no. <laughs> I mean, that's insane. Let me, let's put this in perspective. Um, we cover a lot of philanthropies and charities on this show, and uh, I'm not going to name campuses because now we just look like idiots compared to Penn State, but uh, there are some campuses that do three, four-day events, biking. Uh, they'll bike across America, or um, they'll do an activity in the front yard of their chapter house for two or three days straight, pair up with a sorority, and they'll raise three or four or $5,000. Five or six thousand dollars tops. You guys raised three hundred thirty thousand dollars. Yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm blown away by this. Well, the thing is that, like, again, it's just the hard work and dedication we have to it, also with our sisters. But the big thing that sets Don apart is that each organization is paired with a, like, a family, a family that has kids. Because all the proceeds, what sets Don apart is that it's not just you're, like, you write a check and it goes to like, a foundation. All the proceeds go to the Hershey Medical Center. So it goes to one hospital, and every single person in that hospital, every child who has cancer, is paid for. We pay for the helicopter fees, transportation, even chemotherapy. Gas, even gas. We pay for everything. So each organization, like our Alvatol Omega, we have three families, and each family, one of those kids has or had cancer. So that's why that's what sets Don apart from other philanthropies. Like it's, you know the kids with cancer. You see them in the hospital. You see them at their homes. And that's what really motivates you. So for more information, I would Google uh, Hershey Hospital or Penn State right. Dance Marathon. Or thon.org. Thon.org. Yeah. There we go. I was going to ask how to thong, 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 T-H-O-N. Okay, this has nothing to do with a thong. <laughs> no, not Thon.org. Thon.org. Okay. Tyler and uh, Lorenzo from Penn State University, thank you guys so much for your hard work and dedication towards your philanthropy of thon.org. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Adam Ritz Show is recorded live, both in studio and across the country. For information on this broadcast, including how to hear this show on a station in your city, visit adamritzshow.com.